0: It's funny when you do that because I don't know what you're saying to me. <laughs> so, trying to answer appropriately. Um, my name's Linda and I'm a member of Al-Anon. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Step four and five, I'm going to address them briefly just from the standpoint of Al-Anon and um, then Bob will take over from the AA point. Um, when I first came to Al-Anon, I had absolutely, positively no intentions of ever taking step four and five. You didn't know that. I didn't make that clear to you, but that was the way it was going to be. I was not going to do it. I didn't need them. I was raised a Catholic. I had been um, many, many, many times to confession, and that's what this seemed like to me, and therefore I wasn't doing it. I didn't tell you that. As time went on, people started to assume that I had done steps four and five because I never corrected them otherwise. And I liked the fact that they assumed I had done them because it sort of let me off the hook. In a very funny way, it did. But in a very tremendous way, it didn't because now I not only had not taken steps four and five, but I knew what a phony I was, that I was lying to all of you. And so my dishonesty was even worse than not having even taken step four and five. So finally, I decided... I got in too much pain and I I thought I've got to work this program the way it's supposed to be worked. And I did four and then three weeks later did five. And the thing that I don't know if it's for sure harder for Al-Anons because I'm not on both sides of that, but I think most of the time the Al-Anons I talk to, it's very difficult. It's very easy for them to find all their defects of character but it's very difficult for them to find any assets. And I think that's part of what our illness looks like. We lose ourselves in the alcoholic. We we lose who we are. And we don't even know what we like and what we don't like. And as far as do we have any assets, I remember going to Bob and asking him because the woman who I went and did my fifth step with insisted that I write down assets. And I remember going to him and asking him if I had any. Isn't that sad, you know? But that's what, our, that's what our illness looks like. So I guess the main thing I want to say on four is I, I believe it's very important that you include the things that you've done that you're not so proud of and the things that you've done that, that are your good points. So include, you know, your defects and your assets. I don't know if this is going on and off. Or I'll just talk loud. Um, so I think for al us, we have to include both because it's very difficult. We, we tend to get, put ourselves down a whole lot more. And then for step five, my first fifth step was pretty much what Bob talked about. You know, it was getting rid of sort of those big boulders, the big issues. And over the years, I've been able to do other fourth and fifth steps, and um, they've, become more, um, they've become more refined. I've taken a fifth step, fourth and fifth steps on our marriage, where I really looked at the, the aspects of our marriage, my part, his part, and what I could do to improve. Um, I took a fourth and a fifth step on anger issues that I had around my mother, um, where I just focused on that. And I even took a fourth and a fifth step on aging. I don't like getting older. There were some issues that I was looking at that I didn't like about it. And so I went back to what I've been taught. This is how... You get rid of things that don't work for you, and this is how you come to acceptance and how you come to see God in the situation. So I am now of the opinion that, you know, there was a woman in our group who used to say, she used to drive me crazy, too. She'd always say, well, if you haven't taken the first step, why don't you try it before you say you don't need one? And, oh, she ir- <clears throat> irritated me. But now I really give you that same advice. If you haven't tried one, try it. It really will set you free. Four and five are the steps that we really we come nose to nose with who we are, good and bad. We look at it honestly. It's knowing from my experience. I was in the program seven years before I took a fourth step. It's a lot scarier in that place than it was after I took one. I'll turn it over to Bob. <laughs>
1: Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, The question is, if you're married, do you have to do an inventory? Uh, Or do you have one done for you? Uh, I have done uh, probably eight inventories since I've been in AA. (laughs) A lot of activity. Uh, and the first inventory that I, I, I've done uh, wasn't very insightful. It was important, but it wasn't very insightful. It got rid of, but I look back on it, um, and it accomplished quite a bit. It, it, there was I had I had a lot of guilt around the behavior and and uh, conduct that I had prior to getting sober, and I relieved myself of much of that guilt in the process of doing the early fourth and fifth step, even though by the big book standards about whether I covered all the bases and did the columns correctly and had the right, you know, words, I didn't. Uh, But I felt a great relief. Not only did I feel a sense of forgiveness, which I didn't expect, I really had a sense that the reason I went through that was because I was going to change. And it was kind of reminding myself why I was going about this process. I mean, I think that's good that we you know, that if I was going to change, I really had to know what I was going to change. And uh, my second 4 step was when I was about uh, five years sober, and my third 4 step was when I was seven years sober. And I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to talk about my big change, which is, I think, during six and seven, when we get into the six and seven step. Uh, but, when I, but, but as far as getting into the causes and conditions, of, of the aspects of my sobriety. I didn't really understand the causes and conditions of my unmanageability and my sobriety until I was five and six and seven and eight years sober. I didn't understand it at three years. You can't understand it all at two years or three years. Uh, the book says that the, you know, the doing the first four step is simply about a start in a lifetime process of doing an inventory. If this is a spiritual walk, if this is a process, if this is a spiritual awakening, we're going to be inventorying, we don't have to be anal about it, we don't have to be perfectionist about it, but we're going to be doing some sense of inventorying our whole life. I mean, one of the great assets that I think we have in recovery is if we have a healthy questioning of ourselves. Not a neurotic questioning, not a, you know, people say you're putting yourself down, you're, you're, you know, demeaning yourself. You're not, you know, some of the times the women's movement look at AA and said, you know, this powerlessness is just a tool to keep women down. Different, you know, other organizations look at us and say you're too religious, you know. uh, I don't know how to answer other people's views of us, but from uh, from my point of view of, of, of recovery, having a balanced questioning. We are people who have lived our, we are flawed people. We have, you know, many of us, our behaviors were way the heck out there. Bad. You know, had bad consequences for us and had bad consequences for everybody around us. We're capable of rationalizing a very broad spectrum of behavior. And uh, so we are people who should rightly question our thinking because we can rationalize a lot of things. Plus, how healthy it is to be able to run some of these things by our advisors. It's just, I mean, if you can do that, not only do you have a more open life, uh, but you're going to get input and you're going to be less likely to get isolated and way out there. Uh, so I, I think the process of inventorying is enormously important. Uh, we have, over the last number of years, AA has become much more formal in how it approaches a lot of things. You know, there are there are kind of movements within organizations. Uh, within all organizations there tends to be a movement towards orthodoxy. Okay, you can see it in churches, you can see it in lots of different places. And I I, I think I see that tendency in Alcoholics Anonymous. So there there in, in orthodoxy there gets to be kind of a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Uh, and while our book is instructive, is our is our basic text, I want to say that you can sometimes get too formal. You can sometimes get too rigid about how you do these things. As important as the form of what you do is the spirit of what you do, the heart that you bring to the matter. My sponsor was really big on an attitude. If he, you know, he'd say, give me a person with a good attitude, and they can make mistakes. They don't have to do it. Everybody makes mistakes. I don't care if you have a good attitude or a bad attitude. You aren't going to do this thing perfectly. This is bigger than any of us. This. This you can't contain this. So I'm going to give you my... my uh, Five-minute lecture on uh, on orthodoxy. Uh, you are having a lot of people come to you and talk to you about the steps. You know, you've had uh, Carl and you've had uh, who? Uh, Sharon and Kate. You know, Sharon Casey and you know lots of. And uh, you had Karen Nord, who's in my A group at home, and you. Yeah, and and so all these people are are good friends of mine, and I know them. But, you know, over the next five or six or seven years, you are going to have 15 or 20 people come to talk to you about the steps. And if you went to a big convention in the United States, and you went back to the table where they sell tapes, you'd have all these different people teaching on the steps. Well, when I came in, we didn't have any of that. And yet we had good recovery things were not as structured as they are today and we had good recovery. There's a tendency... uh, So some people would give you the impression that all you need to know in life is 164 pages and your life will be complete. That's not my view. I I think this is the menu. You can starve to death eating the menu. You need... The food. The food is of God. The food is spiritual. Spiritual. Uh, You might never find the food if you don't have the directions. So don't, you know, don't hear me. I don't want to make it sound like I don't want the directions. I want the direction. But it's a description. As the holy man said, when the master points to the moon, all the idiot sees is the finger. You know, the finger is not The object. The moon is the object. So we get the impression that all you need is the right instructions, and it will all be okay. Well, if the steps were mechanical, every time you had a problem, all you'd have to do is say the third step prayer and click your heels, and you'd be back in Kansas. There'd be no no problems. Well, sometimes when you say the third step prayer, no one's home. It's not mechanical. God doesn't answer just when you ring the bell. It's, I mean, that's childish to think that you can somehow reduce these profound spiritual principles to mechanics. Now, it's better doing them mechanically than not doing them. So don't listen to me say, don't do them mechanically. I've done them mechanically. When you're dry and you're having a tough time and you're down, do them mechanically. Okay? Because that's all you can do. You bring what you have. You have to, you know. But there's something you have to bring to the process of doing the steps beyond the form. And it's something to do with your heart. It's something to do with your integrity. It's something to do with your honesty. It's something to do with your openness. It's something to do with humility. It's something to do with teachability. But it's more a matter of the heart. The process of the steps and the process of recovery is is a process of being... Not doing. Most of us want to know what to do. The doing will come when you alter your being. Your being gets altered when you are touched by God. When you are touched by love. When you are touched by the program. Who you be changes. Time and time again... Time and time again in the program, the the book talks about... uh, you know, on page uh, 25. The great fact for us is nothing less. That we have had a deep and effective spiritual experience which has revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. You know, I mean, this is transformational. This is just not a linear change. One, two, three. It's one, two, eight thousand. I mean, it is, it is you know, it, it is a very big deal. When uh, Silkworth talks about Early on the deal, this is very early in the program and Silkberg talks about. he says he 's talking about unless an entire psychic change can take place, there's little hope. And then he says, on the other hand, strange as it may seem to those who don 't understand, once this psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort be necessary to follow a few simple rules. Suddenly, it is when, when, when these things happen of God, it is like we're different. We're, we're not the same people. And when, it's, and when it's changed, you can see it. You can see it in the eyes of the people. You can, you know, we used to joke in treatment. You know, you'd tie a guy up and you'd put him in the trunk of the car. You'd drive him out and he'd spend the two, first two weeks planning how to kill his wife if he ever got out. But in the third week, something happens, and all of a sudden, he's talking to the new person. He's helping them. He's volunteering stuff that he was hiding. You know, <clears throat> very different. You know, not the same man. You know, just in a week. You know, they're very different. So, uh, the impact of the program comes from God. Comes from the spirituality, comes from a power greater than ourselves, not from the form. The form is an assistance. The form leads you to the place to do the work, but the work is not the form. Now, you know, so in saying that, the best way is to, is to engage yourself with the form. Okay, but have some freedom, have some play in that process. Uh, so, you know, a force, so for us to Uh, you know, if we're going to get our lives in the kind of shape and find happiness and balance and wholeness in our lives, we need to know what's wrong. In order for us to find out where our flaws are, where our defects of character, where our shortcomings are, what doesn't work, inventorying is the process. The uh, most conservative members of Alcoholics Anonymous think God wrote the big book, and Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12 in his office. That the big book is the real thing. And the 12 and 12, eh. Okay. I don't believe that. I believe that what we have is Bill Wilson the four years of sobriety writing the book. I believe that he was guided. You, no one's smart enough with four years of sobriety to write with the depth. I am a student of, of uh, Eastern philosophy, and I read a lot of different spiritual and, and religious material, it just comes back and back and back how wonderfully written and how profound and how wise this what Bill Wilson wrote. And I believe, from every fiber of my body and from my experience, that he was guided. I also believe that when he wrote the, the Twelve and Twelve. Seven years later, even though it was published in 1953, he wrote it in 1946 when the grapevine started as a series of articles and didn't come out as a book until afterwards, that he was talking about just trying to deepen the instructions that we had in the book. And you can see different influences on those things. So the same man who wrote the four-step in the big book wrote a very different four-step inventory in the Twelve and Twelve. So, obviously, he didn't think there was only one way to do it. With that said, most of us today follow the instructions in the big book and do the columns. We do the columns on fears and the, or on the resentments, and the columns on fears, and the columns on sex, and we do the fourth column to talk about what was our part, which is the most. What we're trying to do when you go through, if I have a criticism of being too formal, what I find is some of these young people, when they come to me today, they, I feel like, it's an artificial process sometimes. I feel like when they've, they've give me their fifth step, it's too rigid. I don't feel like I get to know them. I don't feel like um, they've dumped the whole load. They're using only the words that are described in the, in, the, in the book. And I'm saying that if you were telling me your story, you'd use more words. Don't restrict yourself to only the words in the book. You know, use the words in the book, but use your own words so that you can, you know, so that you can tell me. What hurts? What's wrong? What doesn't work? What What are you afraid of? I, I, I want to know both those those things. Do you do it? So don't restrict yourself. You know, go through that. So, the fourth and fifth step are, I think, the great rites of passage in the in the program. I think all of us feel more of a member when we have done the fourth and fifth step. We feel like more. Growing up, you know, we feel like we really belong. We now have our spot when we've done the fourth and fifth step. That's a big piece of work. That's kind of the, one of the real initiations, the first step being maybe the key initiation. But the fifth, fourth and fifth step are like that in, in, in Rites of Passage. In our country, the fifth step, uh, and then I wanted to talk just talk briefly about one other thing. Well, I'm going to send up a pamphlet that is... Uh, uh, one of, the, one of the things that we now see going around are what are called step workshops. And uh, uh, people will tell you that they started in different ways. My understanding how some of this started is that there's an old-timer by the name of Cecil Corrigal and, and uh, his sponsor, they kind of co-sponsored each other, Elmer. They both had about 53 years. Elmer just died from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan in Canada. And in order to do some of the prison work, Elmer uh, wrote out these mimeograph sheets that referred to the big book. You know, read, chapter, read the doctor's opinion, and then it would ask you a series of questions on the doctor's opinion. Those got passed around through Denver and through some active young people all over the country. And then about ten years ago, Dr. Paul, who's, you know, the stories in the big book, Dr. Alcoholic Addict. uh Dr. Paul published them in a little, in a little uh, pamphlet. Uh, and he refers to his friend in Texas who sent him A lot of this material. And what it is, is a 16-week workshop on the steps, using the big book. The way we use it, and I don't know if everybody does it the way we do it, but the way we do it is we get 10 to 20 people, although right now one of the groups is 70, and we say, look, we're going to go through the steps. We're not going to read about them. We're going to take them. Okay, we're going to do the work that's in this pamphlet. Okay, And once you're in this group, you're in. I don't want you to say that you're coming here and then don't come. You say you're in this group, you're in. Once we start the group, no one can get in the group. So after the first meeting, maybe between the first and second, but after the second meeting, uh-uh. if you attend this group, you promise you will do it one more time to help someone else. Now, you want some old timers in the group. You want some people who've got 8 years and 10 years and 12 years. And then you want not just everybody new, but... It works, no matter, you know, because the instructions, you know, are in the book. It is pretty good. And then we go through, and we, where the book says to kneel, we kneel. When the book says to pray, we pray. When the book says we admit it, we, were powerless, we admit that we're... So we actually use the words and do the work as we go through the book. When we get to the fourth step, there's about four weeks or five weeks in the book to do the fifth step, or the fourth step, we do not do the fifth step with each other. You make an appointment with your sponsor... Or whoever you're going to take the fifth step with. So there isn't that sort of violation. But what happens is you bond. You get closer during that process. And it's a great process for people who are kind of having a flat spot. It just, it just picks you up. It just gives you like a steroid shot or something like that. It just kind of, kind of does that. And I'm going to send uh, a couple of those pamphlets up here and, and that'll give you another option. So the fourth and fifth step are, uh, I love what the book says. It says, up until this time you've had some ideas of God, now you start to have an experience of God. When you are done with your fifth step, the barriers, when I talked about, I tore down my wall. That completed the tearing down of my wall. I no longer had a barrier between me and you. And I was starting to restore my life. <clears throat> I was starting to restore my relationship with my God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with you. It is an enormous... Uh, passage it is it is the opening of the door I think for the whole second half of the program It is. you know it is the first half of kind of a, you know powerlessness and, and uh, surrender hope you know in the second step and then turning our will over the, the care of God and, and frankly the, the the program rests on how well those three steps and I just want to say one other thing sometimes the tendency in the modern program I think to keep going back to step four and five, uh... when things are bad and what i find is is most of us have the information that's in four and five we know what's wrong we don't need necessarily more inventory or more information we have the information we need to change what we often don't have is step one two and three and the reason that nothing moves when you go back to an inventory when i just go back to step four is because one two and three are not alive at that moment if you really want things to move, you should go back and find out whether 1, 2, and 3 are alive when you go to do 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. Because if, you, if 1, 2, and 3 are not alive, when you do 4 and 5, you're not going to get any result out of 6. You, you are not probably going to get the whole result that you would might hope to have in 6 and 7. I'm going to rush ahead and do 6 and 7, and then Linda can add to... What I want to add to this, and this is kind of funny, usually when we do these, when I do this weekend, I give my talk Friday night. And people know the details, more details of my life. Today, we don't have that format, so it's kind of awkward because I'm going to give my talk tonight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I had a second spiritual experience at eight years of sobriety. I had, I was a very active member of the, I have always been a very active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always gone to four or five, six meetings a week, always had a sponsor, tried to do the steps, sponsor people, act in the service. But my first six or seven years in AA, my life was horribly unmanageable. I had problems at work, with finance, I had a gambling problem, kind of a hobby. (laughs) Four or five hours a day, four or five days a week, it wasn't a big deal. And, uh... But I was making about ten thousand dollars a year playing backgammon. i was kind of a semi-professional backgammon player and uh and i had issues with marriage with you know we were arguing about how life was going and i had issues with my children as i said to you that i was angry and sometimes violent physical with my children i had those problems throughout my entire first six or seven years of sobriety i worked on them pretty hard i care i want to be a good man and it was frustrating as heck for me to keep doing these things as poorly as I continued to do them. And I'll tell you, at at seven or eight years of sobriety, I was uh, in trouble. I was thinking about suicide. You know, not a joke, not sort of, you know. uh, I was tired. I was tired. It gets old. You know, I felt like I could write the book on what to do. I just couldn't do it. It gets frustrating knowing the answer. So, as I said earlier, I was stuck um, in in that place where I thought I had to change before I could ask God's help. Because I thought God would, if I wanted to ask God's help, he'd say change. (laughs) I tried that, I can't do it you know, help me some other way. said, so I can help you some other way. So I thought I'd have to do the change first. Um, and uh, so I did another, four, I, out of desperation, I went back to step one and found out what one meant to me eight years older. I was powerless again. I was unmanageable. I rediscovered step two. I came to believe God was going to restore Bob, not you, not us, Bob, to sanity. I started to see people with bigger problems, with smiles on their faces, with great dignity, walking through walls that I was trying to avoid. And I came to believe God was going to restore Bob. I took the third step on my knees with my sponsor in his office. We didn't do that much in those days. So, you know, that was different, but I thought, I'm going to do it the whole way. I did a fourth step, and I did my third, fifth step the previous two I had done with clergy, and this one I do with my sponsor. And I said, when you're done, be careful, because I'm going to do whatever the heck you t- I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I said, I feel like there's a plastic shield between me and the water. <coughs> <coughs> and um, when I was done, he uh, sent me to a psychologist. And I didn't want to go to a psychologist. I, but I had a lot of issues around money and failure, and work, and success. I had a very successful father, and I thought I'll never be as good as my father. So I had a lot of mixed up stuff. And I didn't want to go, but I said I'd do whatever he recommended I do, and I went to a psychologist. And the psychologist wanted to get my parents involved. I said, no, I won't do that. He wanted to get Linda involved. I thought, oh, crap. (laughs) Uh, It just gets confusing. And uh, maybe more honest than I wanted it to get to When your wife's there, it's pretty hard to deny what the unmanageability is. When you're going alone, you can manage it a little bit. And uh, what I mean, I don't have enough time, and I'll get into it when my... Are we supposed to stop at 215 or something? Okay, give me that coffee. Uh, What I got into it with the psychologist is... uh, but I made a discovery was how afraid I was. Now, at this point, I am uh, 32 years old. I'm married with two children. I'm in a psychologist's office with my wife and those two kids. I'm about to go bankrupt in a job. I don't know why. I'm busting my ass an hour or two a day. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not working. And uh, I'm in as much debt at eight years of sobriety as I was when I came in the program. And I'm in trouble. And uh, I'm an active guy. Okay? I'm I'm trying to do the deal. i just not. I just don't look too good. And uh, I got an. I made a discovery as how afraid I was. Now you'd think having done three inventories and three fear inventories, you know, a couple of fear inventories, but I, that was dogs and high buildings and snakes. I, I had no insight into. And and this guy got me in touch with how afraid of failure I was. And I'll tell you something. If you can't fail, you can't play. You can't play. I was the guy that if we were going to run a marathon, I'd have a great pair of shoes and a great pair of shorts, and I'd look and talk and act like a runner. When the race took off, you'd think I was going to be in the top ten. I'd tell you that I won some race in Minnesota. And for the first third of the race, I'd be up in front. But then somewhere between a third and halfway through the race, I'd fall down and hurt myself and I'd stop. When the race was over, someone would say, what happened to that guy from Minnesota? Say, oh, I don't know. He pulled a hamstring or something. Hell of a runner. God, he was up in the, you know, won some race in Minnesota. But if you would have followed me around in a helicopter in my life the preceding 10 years, you could have guessed within 50 feet when I would have fallen down. Because I don't finish anything. I'm a great starter, but I don't finish anything. And I'll tell you something that gets old. It gets old for your wife, it gets old for your parents, it gets old for you, and it, gets, it just gets old. To have a lot of talent and not be able to put it on the street and use it over an extended period of time gets old. To not be able to use your gifts gets old. And uh, I realized at the moment I was in that office that I was afraid of being a father. I was afraid of being a husband. I was afraid of the responsibility. I was afraid of success. I was afraid of failure. I was swimming in fear and didn't know what. I'd done three inventories and didn't know how afraid I was. And I went home to my, after I did that fourth and fifth, now I'm at the psychology, I went home and I had had a horrible day. And I realized that I had tried as hard as I knew how to try, to change. And I failed. And for some reason, the thought occurred to me that was okay. Maybe that was where I was supposed to be. And I was allowed to take the sixth and the seventh step of the program of AA. The sixth step said, we're entirely ready to have God, not Bob, God, (laughs) Remove our defects of character. The substance said we humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. I had spent eight years trying to get rid of them. I don't have the power to get rid of them. It happens through me, not by me. I am the pipe, not the well. I am not the source. I'm the vehicle through which the power comes through. There's an, you know, a farmer doesn't grow. He plants the soil, creates a fertile environment, creates a place of growth can take place, and God grows. A doctor doesn't heal. He creates an aesthetic environment, creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place and God heals. And we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place and God changes us. When you're ready for change, it's like it falls off you. It just just goes away. Suddenly. It goes away. When you can see through it, when your consciousness gets raised in the process of doing these steps, you look at these things and they aren't treasures anymore. They're dog turds wrapped in gold tinfoil. They are not treasures anymore. You see through them, and they just go away. And that's what, the pro- to me, the process of change. Pretend for a moment, this is, I, I, do, I don't know what I'm going to do in my talk or what I'm going to do here, but I want you to know something about change. If I ask most of us to raise your hands, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands, and say how many people would like to get rid of the things in their life that, don't, that doesn't work and that hurts people, most of us would raise our hands. Well, I want to tell you something. That's not as true as you think it is. Okay? Pretend for a moment that I'm working with a 38, 40-year-old guy, married with children, and he's doing the four-step and he's having trouble with all the columns. And I say, Bill, don't worry about it. I said that's complicated. Don't worry about it. Get your wife and your two kids and your mom and dad, your mother-in-law, your boss, a couple of guys from your AA group, and your brothers and sisters, and bring them over to the house. And here's what I want you to say. We have a step in AA, which helps us get in touch with our defects of character, and I'm having trouble identifying mine. And I'm wondering if you would help. And then hand out tablets and and leave. You'd have a pretty good start on an immigrant, wouldn't you? But most of us would not call that meeting. Do you know why? We don't want to change. But it's worse than that, baby. Worse. We don't want to know. (laughs) We train each other about what you can tell us and what you can't. If you're married, you train your wife. You can say, we're not talking about that. We're not having that. We are not having that conversation. You want to have that conversation? It's going to be a very expensive conversation for you to have. (laughs) Nod your head up and down if you understand. We are not having that conversation. Okay. Your children know what they can say and what they can't say. The people you work with know your bullshit and know what they can say and what they can't say. Okay? Your friends know what they can say and what they can't say. There's stuff that they know what's okay to talk about, what's on the table, and there's stuff that's not on the table. Okay? So we are not as open to change as we think we're open to change. When I was first in the program, I could try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and still grow. But there comes a time where you got to change if you're going to grow. There comes a time when you get to a spot where you're at the fork in the road where it's time. You don't need the inventory. You don't need any more information. You don't need to do any more step work. You need to change. And if you don't change... You then go out and build an addition on your house to accommodate the problem. The chasers hang out with the chasers, the gamblers hang out with the gamblers, and they make a deal. I won't call you on your crap, you don't call me on mine. Deal? Bad deal. I got just the opposite deal with my friends. If I'm out of line, call me. Call me and tell me that if I've done something that really kind of stinky, call me. And tell me, I want to, I really, that's the kind of deal I've got. I've got guys that if they knew, if they heard something, they'd be on the phone calling me. Checking it out. Okay? We are afraid. We so identify with some of our defects of character. We think they who we are. They aren't who we are. They're just behavior. They're not skin and bones. It's just behavior. You can change your behavior without changing who you are. You can change your your political party without changing who you are. You can change your car. You can change your behavior. It isn't who you be. It's what you do. So the reason that a lot of us do not have the results in 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 the process of change and growth that we want is we're afraid. We're afraid to stand in front of. You know, when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous... And took step one. I stood naked in front of my alcoholism. And I never, it was never the same. I drank twice, but it was not with freedom. At eight years of sobriety, I stood naked in front of my life. I saw, I thought, you know, that in some ways I felt like a victim. I don't know how the hell I felt like a victim. And I saw that I had created all these problems that I thought I was a victim of. I designed my life the way it was. I protected my right to gamble. I protected my right to do AA activity when I should have been doing family activity. I protected my right to do all sorts of, to spend money whenever the hell I wanted to spend money to do whatever I wanted to do. i didn 't want that up for change. I wanted my business success to change, but i didn 't want certain of my personal preferences to change. And it, it, it scared me that I, in order to change, I might have to put it all up on the counter. I didn't want to put it all. I wanted to pick and choose. And I think what I was afraid of is that life would be dull or no fun or not what I wanted or not enough or I don't know what. But I'll tell you, when you get it going the way it's supposed to be going, there's no shortage. There's abundance. There's joy. I mean, it is better. Than the other way has ever been. I've never had it all together, but my life substantially is more together today and more in balance today and more in peace today than it has ever been. And it's great. It is, you know, there just isn't. I'm in love with my wife. I mean, that's great. You know, it's not perfect, but it's great. You know, it is, it is, uh, that's a nice thing. It's a nice thing for our kids. It's, I mean, I have a good relationship with our children. But I want you to know how afraid of change I often am, and you often are. And sometimes we don't know that. We think in our heads, I'm ready to change. And you're dealing with the same monster that kept your alcoholism and drug dependency intact for a hell of a long time. You are more conflicted around change than you think you are. And sometimes you have to go back and examine that. And it takes a courage for us to confront There's a great book. I usually don't recommend other books, but I'm going to do what I probably shouldn't do. There's a a Buddhist nun by the name of Pima Chodron. And she she has a uh, Buddhist monastery in Nova Scotia. And she wrote a book called Places That Scare You. And it's about being a spiritual warrior. And the idea of a spiritual warrior is a person who can stand in front of what they're afraid of. And I think... That speaks to those of us who are in in the program of AA and growing, that we regularly are asked to, if we're doing inventory and we're listening to the world and we're listening to our family, because if God wanted to get a message to you, how would He get it to you? Bad news, probably your spouse, maybe your parents, maybe your employer, maybe your kids, but He's going to use the people you're in relationship with. Okay? (laughs) And most of us are afraid to listen to the message. It takes a courage to grow. It takes courage to change. It takes courage to stand naked in front of the unworkability of your life. But most of us know that that what we're afraid of is an illusion. Most of us know that the way to spiritual growth is through the fire, not around it. The fire is an illusion. There is no pain in change. There's only pain and resistance to change. That's a quote from Clancy that I stole. But there is no pain in change. But we fear change. We fear loss of the known. So the engine of our program, four, five, six, and seven, and we'll get into eight and nine. Do you want to finish six and seven? Okay. Uh, It's two o'clock. Do you want to start eight and nine? Yes? Um, We're going to do a little on eight and nine, and then we're... You said 2.15, did you not? What? Okay. So we're going to go to 2.15 on 8 and 9, and then we're going to do questions and answers. Is that, is that okay? All right. Uh, step 8 and 9. Uh, I made a list of all people we had hired and became willing to make make amends of them all. One of the other things when I talked about when we're doing step 4 and 5 that we need to remember is... If you, if you focus too much on just the form, there's two things you want to get out of that. You want to get out of it a list of your defects of character so when you get to step six and seven, you know what you're asking, what you're asking, for, what you're asking to get ready to have removed, and you're asking for God to remove. It would be good that we have that list out of our fourth and fifth step experience, and it may take a little bit more work. Also, it would be good to have an eighth step list come out of our fourth and fifth step. So keep that in mind when you do, you know, most of us who have been around a little bit, but a lot of times we do that like we're not even thinking about what comes later. You know, we're not thinking about the list, and when we get to the eighth step list, we either have to go back, or if we don't have their fourth step, we we go back. So I like to try to, uh, you know, have some sort of sense that when I'm doing my fourth and fifth step, that when I'm done with it, that I'm going to have my sixth step list and my eighth step list. Uh, In order for us to do an A-step list, made a list of the persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, there has to be a change of heart. Because most of us come in here and we feel for whatever reason we've been a victim. Not everybody, but I did. And I don't even know why. I was loved, I was taken care of. But you feel like you're a victim of circumstance and bad luck or bad breaks and... You know, you hang on to the, you know, you, you need a way to explain why you haven't done much with your life. And you think, oh, if this would have happened, if I would have gotten that break, I would have been okay. You know, and we, don't want to, we don't want to take responsibility for our lives. It's just too harsh. It's too painful for us to stand up and say, I, I goofed it up. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't do it well. Uh, so the eighth and ninth step are, uh, to me, the get-out-of-jail-free cards. And sometimes I think that they are underutilized today in the program. I think that they uh, are—they are the place that if you don't complete your eighth and ninth step, I think you are locking up a lot of energy that you need to live your life. Uh, If I were to uh, borrow uh, $3,000 from uh, what's your name? (laughs) First mistake. Uh, okay, i got to say that again. I... Yes. No, the first name, Vermin?
2: I'm having trouble.
1: Goodman? Okay, I'm having trouble. I'm sorry. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Sikki. Excuse me.
2: I'm,
1: I'm, I don't have a good ear for language. <laughs> if, if I were to borrow $5,000 from Sikki, okay, and assume that he was a pretty well-off guy and had a fair amount of money and he can lend me the money, and I tell him, I need $5,000, uh, I'll give it back to you. I'm, my tax return is coming back in three months. So let's say he lends me the money, okay? Big mistake. He lends me the money, and then I don't pay him back, all right? Well, the first thing I've got to do is, is as, soon as, I, as soon as it comes time for me to pay him back, I start, I start missing meetings, because I don't want to be in the meetings where he is. Okay? Then I've got to kill him, because he bothers me. So I go around and say, oh, you know, he's kind of a jerk. He's got a lot of He doesn't need the money. I mean, I, I start saying negative things about him, so that I somehow neutralize him, so, he, so it doesn't bother me in my mind. Then I stop going to the group. So I lose my A meeting. And let's say two years pass. But every time his name comes around on the carousel of my mind, you can just see my lights dim. Okay? My battery just drains. Well, alcoholics don't have one of those. okay. We've got 20 of those. Okay? Little black holes little black holes that suck our soul, that suck energy, that suck light out of our spirit. And those incompletions drain us. And I think if you wonder why sometimes people who have a lot of talents but are unable to do much with their talents, there are a lot of people in AA like that. I think... Many times it's because they have not completed steps eight and nine. They're afraid of it. They don't think they have enough money. They don't, you know, whatever the explanation is. They haven't gotten to the point where they're responsible enough to own up to what they have done. And that that takes, you know, what happens when you can own it, you can change it. You can take responsibility for it. Your integrity gets restored. Your wholeness gets restored. Now, when you start, when you, when you, when I get him back, and maybe it's not giving him back the whole $5,000. Maybe it's going back to him and saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Here's $500, and I will give you $50 a week for the next three years, or whatever, however. okay. I haven't even totally paid him back. But the moment that I made the list and knew that I was willing to go through that process, I started to be free immediately. Not when it was done, I know men that took eight or ten years. We used to have parties for people who paid their bills. You know, I mean, you know, we'd go out and celebrate. We'd go out and have coffee and ice cream after the meeting because I remember Mark, you know, it was about, it was about eight or nine years for him to pay off his amends. I remember I was newly sober and I thought, holy cow, it took him eight or nine years. I thought, that's a lifetime. I'm 24 years old. And I thought, you know, but what, what dignity. What dignity there is for the persistence of that man to keep taking the amount of money and doing that over that period of time. I don't know what his list was or how much money it was, but I know that I can still remember the day and still remember the celebration that we had. And I can remember when I got my amends paid off the first time. It was a very big deal. When you do that, the energy that was being sucked into those little holes, there's energy in completions. When you complete something, there's, you know, when you go clean the garage, when you clean your closet, you create an energy. It's the same thing in your life. When you clean up an area of your life, it's like there's a, something gets created in that process and that energy becomes available for you now to live your life. Before, it's amazing that we had the energy to get dressed. We had all these little black holes that were holding us down and going back. So I really think that the eighth and ninth step, it is, the, uh, it is the prima facie evidence that you have had the change of heart necessary to undertake the work of the program. You've admitted your powerlessness. You've turned your will and your life over to the care of God. You've inventoried what's wrong. You've shared it with another person, and now you're going to make the wrongs right. And when you've done that, your work is done. Now you just continue. Now you go through the maintenance steps. Now you just keep going forward. But the bulk of your work is done. The promises follow in the book. You know, the, the main promises that we talk about in the book follow steps eight and nine. But I think today there's an overemphasis on four and five, and an underemphasis on eight and nine, because we're more intellectual. We want more information, and I think we have more information than we're willing to admit. And the core. And, and also today, I would like to say that I think sometimes we are too psychological. You know that, that 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 you know we the list of eight and nine get too long. We go back to high school and remember every you know, a little thing that someone did to us or, you know, or we did to someone else. And you can get a little neurotic going through this list. And I think a little common sense is good. And uh, But I think there's a power, uh, the power of completion and the restoration of your integrity. And when you restore someone, I have watched uh, a half a dozen guys that I sponsor go through this process, and when they've completed it, they're different men. They're just they're different men. They're they're and people treat them differently. I know people who before prior to this process that uh, people used to give a bad time to all the time. And when they went through this process, they were no longer people you could give a bad time to. They just were bigger people than they were before. And and because something got restored, something got returned to them in that process, and invariably. They were able to go on and do better things with their lives than they had been able to do up till then. So there's some very good stuff.
0: Well, in Aylan, you know, we do the same thing. We have hurt people either by committing some crime or act against them, or by because of our anger, self pity isolation. We've withdrawn from people for no reason at all. And these people don't know what's happened. Um, So we have to take a look at, from our list, I mean, from our fourth and fifth step, the people that we have harmed by our behavior. I think it's real important to remember that eight and nine come at position eight and nine. I didn't pay attention to that the first time because, as I said, I wasn't going to do four and five, and there were a couple of other ones I wasn't going to do either. And um, But I thought maybe I could do eight and nine. So I sort of jumped into eight and nine because I wanted to do something. And the good news was I didn't do any harm to anybody. But I could have. I really could have. I think eight and nine come in that position exactly the right place because then you're supposed to have steps one through seven under your belt completed. And also you will have at that point hopefully a sponsor someone that you would check out. Um, I think we need to make the list, but I think we need to check that list with our sponsor. You know, where it says to make amends wherever possible or whenever possible. That's something I think needs to be discussed because you don't want to create more pain by making your amends. If I've gossiped about you, it is not appropriate for me to come up to you in my opinion and say, I've been gossiping about you for eight years. Boy, I'm really sorry about it. You know, um, but my job in that situation is not to tell you. My job in that situation is not to gossip. Is to change my behavior and then maybe do some kindnesses for you for the reason that I have harmed you, but not to open a wound that you don't even know you have. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's some real importance in the positioning of these steps and also in um, checking them out with your sponsor because I don't think... I don't think I had the wisdom that my sponsor had, and she was able to help me do some sorting. So anyway, I I got to 8 and 9, and I I had a list, and I made amends to those people. And then we're a step group in our our group, so every week we do a different step. So every 13 weeks, we come around to 8 and 9 again. And every time I would get to 8 and 9, I would just say the prayer that if there's somebody who I have not cleaned up, please let... That could become.
2: For you, for, <laughs> you know, I sort of get on a roll and then I laugh. Now <laughs> um, <I'll>
0: behave. <laughs> so I say that prayer. And probably around 10 years into my program, and I don't know the timing and it's not important. This woman that I worked with, her name was Helen, and she started to come up, sort of like bubbling up, and I would say, no, no, there's no reason I didn't do anything to harm that woman, but it wouldn't go away. And finally, I realized after praying about it and talking it over that I needed to make amends to this woman. This is a woman that I worked with when I taught in a college situation, and she was Um, probably about 10, 12 years older than I was. And she was the head of the department and I worked underneath her. So I would pick up the slack when she wouldn't teach. I would teach, but she was having some gum surgery and she wasn't teaching as much as she could. So I was taking over, but rather than just taking over, I was puffing myself up and making myself look more important. And by doing that, I was putting Helen down. And I knew that it was dirty and ugly and I didn't like myself for it, but she really didn't know about it. And I started to look at things and I realized in some ways I think she did know about it. But, you know, should I really call her? I mean, do I want to open up an old wound? Do I want to open up a wound anyway? Well, finally it became clear that I needed to. And one day I was reading the Sunday paper and they had an article on how to do something crazy with geraniums. And Helen did the same thing with geraniums. And I thought, all right, I'm going to call her. So I, I knew exactly where she lived. I knew her last name, looked it up. Maybe maybe it won't be there. Maybe she'll have an unlisted number. Well, she had a listed number. So I called her up, and I said, you know, told her who I was, and we chatted for a little bit and then sort of reconnected. And, and I said, you know, Helen, I have something I have to tell you. And so those times when you were having the gum surgery, I was I was catty. And I I was making myself better at your expense. And I I feel really badly about this, and I want you to know that I was wrong, and it's something that I'm not proud of, and I'm really sorry for the pain that I did cause you. And she said, oh, she also had known that we were in AA and Al-Anon at the time, and she knew that Bob did speaking. And she said to me, are you doing a ninth step? I said, well, Yeah. I was. She said, well, she said, first of all, I accept what you've said. She said, but I want you to know that I wasn't having gum surgery. I was taking all those mints because I was drinking about a quart of vodka a day. And I am now sober in AA. And I understand what you're doing, and I totally accept that. And I'm really grateful that you called. And so we talked for maybe another 30 minutes or something, and... It didn't have to go that way. It, it could have, she could have gotten angry with me and hung up, and I would have been okay. But you never know, do you? And I am so grateful that she kept coming up on my carousel, because if I hadn't paid attention to that, I never would have had that wonderful experience. And I was retelling, my, my people in my group say, tell us the Helen story. <laughs> Sometimes if someone hasn't signed up for Step 9, and so they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, tell us the Helen story. I told it about maybe three, five months ago, and I can't remember her last name anymore. And I thought, you know why I can't remember her last name? Because I don't have to know her last name anymore. She lived in Bayport. She probably still lives there. But I don't have to know her last name because I am clean with Helen. So every time we come around to Step 8 and 9, I say that same prayer, and I've had one other thing pop up, and I've taken care of it too. I hope nothing else pops up, but I, I'm going to keep. Yeah, we're going to talk afterward. I think I'm going to be busy for a while. <laughs> um, but I'm going to keep saying that prayer because I want to. I want to stay clean. I want. I want to have my energy for my life, and I agree so much with Bob that these holes, whether it be clutter in our house, which we're also talking about, trying to, you know, eliminate these areas that we have sort of, we have piles that grow up around us in our home, and we're, we're trying to really work on that. Or whether it's people, relationships, we need the energy to live our lives. Our lives are important. This is not a dress rehearsal. And I want to have all the energy I can have to be present to the day, and eight and nine what did you say? Is it let you out of jail cards? Or? They give us freedom. And we need that for our lives.
2: Okay. Thank so, uh, you. We're going to do a couple of minutes now. There you go. Oops. Thank you.